Welcome to Huntersville Lutheran Sermon Webcast. We invite you to join us here for worship every Sunday at 10 a.m. Find out more at huntersvillelc.com. Thank you for joining us today. Wisdom, the concept of wisdom, the pursuit of wisdom has, has fascinated people since the dawn of time. And, and it's so fascinating because everybody wants to be wise, don't they? And it's fascinating also because everybody talks about wisdom differently. Take Socrates, for example. Does everybody know who Socrates is, or at least heard of him, the Greek philosopher? He said that there's one kind of true wisdom, that true wisdom is knowing that you know nothing at all. Right? Pretty simple definition. But then you hold that in contrast to, to Aristotle, another Greek philosopher, who said there's not just one kind of true wisdom, there's actually two. There's a theoretical wisdom, like knowing a bunch of stuff in your head about a bunch of different subjects, and then there's practical wisdom, using all of the knowledge at your disposal to create and to live a better life. You could probably come up with 100 different definitions of, of wisdom, but all of these definitions are all pointing you to, pointing you to or trying to ask or answer, excuse me, a, a singular question. What makes a person wise? All of this got me thinking, what, am I wise? And no, I don't want you to answer because I'm scared of what, what, what Andy would actually say about that. But, but am I wise? Right? I can fix cars, I can build things, I can rattle off a bunch of dates and facts from history, both secular and biblical, but does that mean that I'm wise? Are you wise? That, that question, it drives us to a collective pursuit of, of wisdom, practical wisdom for our daily lives. Because we all want to be wiser employees and spouses and parents and friends. And, and frankly, there's, there's nothing wrong with the pursuit of practical daily wisdom because, like Aristotle says, this wisdom is invaluable for helping you to live a better life. But as God's people, as people who are loved by God, as people who love God, you understand that, that practical daily worldly wisdom cannot be your only focus. In fact, it cannot be your primary focus. Because deep in your hearts, you know that there is a wisdom that God desires you to have more. A wisdom that comes from Him. A heavenly wisdom, a, a spiritual wisdom. And God shows this concern for you and, and for this wisdom all throughout Scripture. Look at the Old Testament and the word for wisdom. It's used 222 times. <laughs> Look in the New Testament, the word for wisdom is used 51. God clearly shows that he wants you to have wisdom. And because God is so concerned with you having wisdom, with having children who are spiritually wise, having wise children, wise men and wise women as his children, then the question that you and I are forced to wrestle with this morning is, what makes a person spiritually wise? That's the question that Matthew answers for us in our gospel this morning in, in Matthew chapter 2, and he does so in a really fascinating way. He does it by painting uh, a picture of two groups of people who aren't spiritually wise and one group of people who is. You know, months after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Mary and Joseph and their newborn baby, they settled into a house of their own in the very city where Jesus was born, in Bethlehem, which is about five miles outside of the epicenter for Jewish religious life, Jerusalem. And at some point during that time of them settling in, there was a, a strange group of foreigners who came from the east. And they came to Jerusalem with a question. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. The fascinating thing is, is not necessarily the question that they ask, but who these people actually were. These people were, were a group of, of men called Magi. And depending on who you ask and what you read, they were a group of, of men who were either astrologers or astronomers. Either way, they, they spent their entire lives studying at, they're studying and looking up at the stars. They were employed by courts and kings to, for the all-important job of, of interpreting signs and, and dreams. 
but no matter, no matter what they were doing, there was a, a great deal of hocus pocus involved by looking up at the stars, by reading these, these ancient secular texts. And one night as they were doing their job, as they were looking up and they were studying the stars, they saw it. In a place that used to be pitch black, that had been pitch black for centuries, a star appeared, one that behaved differently from every other celestial body in the sky because the stars that they knew, they all moved in a pattern that they were so familiar with. But this star, it was in a place it wasn't supposed to be and it moved differently from the rest of them and it shone brighter than every other star in the sky. And when they saw that star, they remembered it. What they thought was either a myth or a legend or a prophecy. Now, we're not entirely sure where they would have gotten this prophecy from, but personally, I believe that these magi, they came from a country called Babylon. And in 586 BC, Bab Babylon laid waste to Judah, carrying off the brightest and the best of the Jews, including a man named Daniel. Now, by God's grace, Daniel rose up through the ranks of the Babylonian courts and eventually was placed in charge of this group of people known as the magi, the ancestors of the people who showed up in, Jer in Jerusalem. This means that those magi they were heirs to the Old Testament prophet, the knowledge of the Old Testament prophet, Daniel. And Daniel, when he was in charge of these magi, he would have no doubt relayed prophecies like the one from Numbers 24, that a star will rise from Jacob. Or the prophecy like you heard in, in Isaiah chapter 60 this morning, that nations will, will stream to your light and kings to the brightness of their dawn. So when, the, when these magi, they saw that star appear in the sky, they no doubt knew that it meant that a king had been born. But that's only because God told them that much. They didn't know exactly who this king was. They didn't even know exactly where to go and look. They had some of the pieces of the wisdom puzzle, but they didn't have all of the pieces necessary to see the big picture. So they went out and they began their search. These wise men, they, they're like the, the people today who, who spend their entire lives searching for wisdom, but they don't know quite what they're looking for, and they don't know quite where to look for it. And then they stumble upon it. They stumble upon Christianity either by accident or through a podcast or, or maybe through a friend who has been a, a lifelong Christian. And then they begin to, begin to get the little pieces of the puzzle. But they don't have enough yet. There are some pieces missing. So they go on a search for these missing pieces. And they, they begin to open up their Bibles and they read. They scour the internet. They talk to, to people like all of you who have been Christians. And all of this leads them to a, a greater and deeper search for wisdom. And this is exactly what happened to my friend Logan. Logan had spent the first 40-some years of his life laughing at the idea of God. In fact, Logan is, is the only hardened atheist I've ever come into contact with face-to-face. -face. Now, Logan reasoned that, that no intellectual man or woman in the 21st century should have, should have anything to do with God, that Christianity had nothing to offer the, the reasonable 21st century man or woman. And he was only hardened in his unbelief and in his atheism when his mother lost her very long battle with cancer. And this is what Logan said to me. Logan said that if God exists the way that he says he does, and he is who he says he is, then there is no way that he would allow someone like my mother, who loved him very dearly, to suffer the way that she did. Kind of shocking, isn't it? But Logan, uh, Logan, after his mother died, he, he had this emptiness in his heart that, that he never really realized was there. He thought maybe it was just because his mother had, was gone and he, he couldn't spend time with her anymore. And so he tried to fill this emptiness with all sorts of things, with his wife and kids, with, with work, with exercise. He was a marathon runner. But none of it really worked. And then one day as he was sitting in his office, he came to this realization that this emptiness wasn't caused by his mother being gone from his life. It was an emptiness that had always been in his life. He just never took time to recognize it. 
fast forward a couple months and, and Logan is going through this box of stuff, the last box of things that were brought from his mother's house when they cleaned it out and, and that's when they found it. They found this ratty, torn up, marked up Bible. It was the one that his mother had used every single day of her life. And I don't know whether it was curiosity or sadness or he, or he thought maybe it would make him feel close to his mother, but Logan picked up that Bible and he sat down and he began to read and read and read. And he began to see the pieces of the puzzle. He began to see that star rise in the darkness of his heart. And when that star began to rise, he, he went on a, a greater and a deeper search for wisdom. When Logan picked up that Bible, it was a Thursday, and three days later, he stepped foot into a, a place he had sworn off his entire life, a place he hadn't been to in over 30 years. He came to church. That was the first day I met Logan. Logan walked through those church doors that day, searching for wisdom, loaded with questions, just like those wise men were when they came to Jerusalem. You know, it, it makes sense, doesn't it, the, the place where these wise men go to search for a king? They go to Jerusalem. It's the ancient city of kings, the place where Jewish kings had sat for, thousand, or for, for, for about a thousand years. And when they come to Jerusalem, they find the king who is currently in power, a man named King Herod. And then they ask him their question, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Now Herod, in his own right, uh, especially by worldly standards, he was a wise man. He was a masterful builder. He was a very careful planner. He was, he was wealthy. He was politically savvy. And, and he had enough sense for a very long time, nearly 40 years, to stay in the good graces of the Romans who put him into power. But for all of the wisdom that Herod had, he had no idea what those wise men were asking about because he hadn't heard any rumors of, a, of an uprising of the Jews. He hadn't heard any rumors that Caesar wanted to, to depose him and get rid of him as the king. And so he was sent into great turmoil. For all of the wisdom that Herod had, he had no idea what these wise men were talking about, but he did have enough wisdom to go and ask the right people the right questions. He called in the Jewish religious leaders, the chief priests and the, and the teachers of the law, because if anybody was going to know where the newborn king of the Jews was, it was, it was going to be them. And he was right. The, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they, they quote a prophecy from Micah, from Micah chapter 5. They say, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the, who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. Turns out... Those magi, they were searching in the wrong city because they weren't this newborn king. He wasn't in Jerusalem. He was in Bethlehem, a city five miles outside of Jerusalem. And these chief priests, they knew all about God's chosen Messiah. They did because these were men who spent their entire lives searching through and studying and interpreting and implying God's Old Testament knowledge. They knew exactly where this king was supposed to be born. They knew exactly what he came to do and they waited for God, to make good on this promise to send a Savior into the world to, to rescue them from their sin, the thing that they could not do on their own. These men, these chief priests and the teachers of the law, they had all of the knowledge up here. They had all of the pieces of the puzzle, just none of the wisdom to actually put the puzzle together. They knew the exact location. They knew what this guy was supposed to do, but they didn't have enough wisdom and enough sense to go into Bethlehem five miles away and actually search for this king. They had a whole bunch of head knowledge. They just had no wisdom in their heart. These chief priests and the teachers of the law, they're like the people today who, like the churchgoer today, who comes to church every Sunday and who knows that Jesus died for their sins, but, but still feels like they have to work out their salvation and their forgiveness and their eternity on their own, as if Jesus' death and resurrection aren't enough. They've got all the facts up here. They just have none of the wisdom right here. 
these chief priests and the teachers of the law, they're like the, the person sitting in a pew who, who knows that God has set up a standard of what is right and what is wrong for them, but they feel like that's really hard to apply in, in a 21st century context, words that were written over 2,000 years ago. So they come up with their own set of, uh, of subjective morality, what's right and wrong for them. They've got all the knowledge up here, just none of the wisdom to actually put it into practice. These chief priests and the teachers of the law, they're like the, the person who comes to church every Sunday because they know it's good for them. They do. But the other six days of the week, they live as if, well, as if they didn't wear a single thing on Sunday. All of these people, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they've got all of the head knowledge, all of the facts that they need. Just They just don't have faith. They just don't have any of the wisdom to use it. After these chief priests and the teachers of the law tell Herod that this newborn king was in Bethlehem, just five miles away, Herod moves into action. He calls these magi in for a very secret meeting, and he asks them exactly the timing of when that star appeared in the sky. And after that, he sends them on a fact-finding mission, basically. He says, go to Bethlehem and make a careful search for this child, and when you find him, report back to me so that I too may go and worship him. At this point, Herod is just like those chief priests and the teachers of the law. He's got the prophecies. He's got the facts. He's just like those magi who have the star that, or have the exact location of the star, who knew that the star rose. Herod has all of the pieces of the knowledge now. He just has none of the wisdom to actually do anything good with it. Because as we find out later, Herod had no intention of going and worshiping this newborn king. Instead, what he wanted to do was kill this threat to his power. And Herod, there's a good chance you, you've met, and if you haven't met one yet, you will, met a, met a 21st century Herod. He's like the atheist who's heard all of the evidence for Christianity and, and thinks that because he has reason and worldly wisdom on his side, he's convinced that you are dead wrong and that he's right. Herod is like the, the evolutionist who teaches your, your high school or your uh, college biology class. He knows exactly what Christians say, what the Bible says about creation, about how the world came into being, but, but he thinks that the wisdom of the scientific method has fundamentally disproved what God says in his word. And he doesn't have any, he's got all the facts, but he doesn't have any of the wisdom to see past his own sphere of learning. Herod is like Sam Harris. Have you, any of you guys ever heard of Sam Harris? He's a, he's a popular philosopher, or philosopher and neuroscientist, and he's widely known for his harsh critiques of Christianity. In, in 2004, Sam Harris wrote a book called The End of Faith. And like Herod in the first century, who took all of the knowledge he had given to him by the wise men, given to him by the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and wanted to do nothing but bad with that information. Sam Harris takes everything he knows about Christianity, and his sole aim is to, to fundamentally demolish and destroy everything that Christianity stands for. All of these men, they, they've got the knowledge up here. They just have none of the wisdom to do anything good with it. And these magi, after they, they get their instructions for the fact-finding mission to go to Bethlehem, they set out and they listen to Herod, at least in part. They go to, on their way to Bethlehem, they see that star rise in the sky again, the very star that led them to Jerusalem in the first place. And they follow this star until it stops over the house where this child is. And when they go in the house, they find Mary and Joseph and the baby. And these wise men fall to their knees and worship him. And they open up their treasures and give him gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And then having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they go back to their own country by another route. These, these men, these magi, they exemplify what a spiritually wise person looks like. They exemplify what true spiritual wisdom is like. 
because they didn't use their human wisdom, their vast human knowledge to find this Christ child. They couldn't have because they went to the wrong city and they went and worshiped or they went and found the wrong king in the first place. No, these wise men, they simply stopped and they listened to God and they believed him. That's what being a spiritually wise person is like. A person who stops, who listens, and believes. Now, there's something incredibly special about these wise men that we haven't talked about yet. The fact that they were Gentiles. They were people outside of the scope of God's covenant promise to Israel. They weren't descended from the patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They didn't have nearly the scope of knowledge that the chief priests and the teachers of the law had. They were a common people with a common problem no matter what title they rode into Jerusalem with. They were people like you and me who struggled with sin. And that's why this account of, of wisdom and wise men is so incredible for you and me today. Because it shows that, that the Savior born in Bethlehem didn't come to just save Israel. He came to save the world. He came to save you and me. And this knowledge of a Savior born to save the world it can't be found by any sort of human wisdom. It can't be found by searching up in, in the stars or trying to secretly pry information out of somebody. It has to be revealed to you. And that's what God did for these wise men. God revealed to them time after time exactly what he wanted them to know. He revealed to them through the prophecies of Daniel handed down from their ancestors. He revealed to them through a star where the Savior was to be born. And finally, he revealed the very face of himself in this little baby born in Bethlehem who would grow up to save them from their sins. God revealed to these wise men and gave them true spiritual wisdom. A wisdom that took the facts that they had in their head and turned it into faith, that created faith. And no matter what title these wise men rode into Jerusalem with, uh, carrying the title of wise men on their shoulders, they rode out of that country after worshiping that baby born in Bethlehem with the title of wise men branded on their hearts, with a heart filled with faith, a heart filled with true spiritual wisdom, wisdom that stops that listens and believes. And what God did for those wise men 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, he did for my friend Logan, right before my very eyes. Just about a week after Logan came to church for the first time, he enrolled in a faith builders class, the very same class that I, I often teach here. And God revealed to him week after week spiritual wisdom, the wisdom that he is loved by the God he once hated, that he's forgiven from all of his sins, past, present, and future, the wisdom that because this baby was born in Bethlehem and lived and died and rose for him, that heaven is his forever. And in April, about a month and a half after Logan first came to church and discovered true spiritual wisdom, he was baptized. He was made a dear child of his father in heaven. God made Logan wiser than he, had ever, he ever could have imagined. God gave him true spiritual wisdom. And what God did for Logan, what God did for those wise men, he's done to every single person that's sitting here today. Every single one. God has opened up the treasures of his word and revealed wisdom to you. Through the miracle and the waters of baptism, he has created faith in your heart, taking the facts that you know up here and planting them deeply, deeply in your hearts. It's this wisdom that seeks the treasure in the word of God. It's this wisdom that seeks the treasure that God offers you in the supper in just a few moments. The treasures of the forgiveness of sins, of eternal life, of life with God forever. That's the thing about true wisdom. True wisdom, it's not, it's not about fixing cars or being able to build things. It's not about the, the ability to make kids sit still in a classroom or, or produce the best production videos for your, for your company. If that were what true wisdom is like, 
Well, then Herod would be the personification of wisdom, wouldn't he? You see, true wisdom, too, it's not just, it's not just knowing facts about Scripture. It's not knowing prophecies and dates and, and locations, because if that were true wisdom, if that were true wisdom, then the chief priests and the teachers of the law would be the personification of wisdom. But they're not, because for those chief priests and the teachers of the law, all of that knowledge simply remained up here and never migrated to here. It always remained head knowledge. It never became heart knowledge. It never became faith. And that's why I'm so thankful that that God reveals to us what this true spiritual wisdom looks like in Matthew chapter 2. He paints this beautiful picture of the wise men, wise men who were spiritually wise. And based on that picture, do you know what I see? I see a group of people before me we're spiritually wise. I see a group of people before me who stop and who listen to God and who obey what he says. That, that is a gift. That is spiritual wisdom. And God grant you that wisdom all the days of your life. Amen.